In some ways, this seems the easiest topic, grace and love. But I think of them all, it's the most difficult to do justice to. And it's surprising the extent to which love has varied in discussions of the divine attributes over the centuries. If you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where I often begin my thinking, the answer to question four, what is God, manages to define God, to describe him, without mentioning his love at all. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. No mention of love. No mention of grace. If you go to, if a minister goes to his library shelves and takes down the classic work on the attributes of God, uh, Stephen Charnock, the Puritans, Discourses on the Existence and Attributes of God, it's either a big thick one volume or it's in two volumes. There's no chapter. There's no chapter on God's love. There's no chapter on God's grace. Grace and love are just treated as subdivisions, aspects of God's goodness. And that reflects the medieval style of theology about God. No great stress was laid on the love of God. For centuries it was just treated as a component, one incidental aspect almost, of divine goodness. Now we're all aware that that's changed. In modern thinking, the change has been so great that uh, love is taken as the, the most prominent of all the divine attributes. Indeed, there are those who, with some definition or another of love, take it as equivalent to God. And as one looks round the professedly Christian world, the most common presentation of divine love is as a kind of amiable weakness. Love is the smile on the face of God as he looks down with good-natured indulgence on what these humans have managed to get up to. And love is down, it's prominent, but it's downgraded from the scriptural presentation. It becomes a sort of sickly sentimentality. We must make sure that when we give God's love its place in our thinking, uh, we're not just using human ideas. We're not just simply going from human ideas about love and saying that's what it means when we talk about God. We must make doubly sure uh, that uh, we are being guided and operating within scriptural parameters when we start to think about God's love because we are very ready uh, to, to find here love that condones, love that excuses, love that is something other than what Scripture says. Well, what then does Scripture tell us about God and love? There's the well-known statement. It occurred twice in the chapter, the portion that was read earlier. God is love. 
And it's worth thinking about that. It doesn't say God loves. It doesn't say God is loving. As though it were presenting us with a, an action of God's that takes place now and again. Or as if it were some incidental aspect of what God's like. This isn't on the same level as God rules or God judges or even God creates. It's telling us something more. It's telling us that God is the epitome. God is the paradigm. God is the ultimate standard and exemplar, exemplar of what love is. He is the sole source of real love. Love is of the essence of God. This is a basic characteristic about what God has always been like. And it's something that applies to all that God does. If you look at the text, God is love, as it was originally written in Greek, there's a definite article before God, and there's no article before love. And the absence of the article before love, the text isn't God is the love, The article is missing, and that indicates that it's not a particularizing statement. God is the particular type of love we're thinking about. It's rather a qualitative statement. Love characterizes the very nature of God. And the presence of the article before the word God, literally it's the God is love, shows that the statement isn't reversible. You can't turn it round and read it as love is God. God is love is presenting us with an insight into the very nature of God himself. But we mustn't absolutize the relationship as if that was all that needs to be said about God. Once you've understood that God is love, That's it all. Because even from the pen of the Apostle John himself, there are two other truths regarding God that we have to take into account. In his Gospel, John relates, God is spirit. And earlier in that letter, he tells us, God is light. And those statements are of the same grammatical form. They can't be reversed either. We can't say spirit is God or light is God. We have in our theology to take on board the three things, as well as others, because they're setting out different aspects of the essential nature of God. God is spirit denotes his metaphysical nature. Light and love deal with the character of God. Indeed, perhaps God is love goes a bit further because it, more than the other two, brings out very clearly that God is a person because love is a personal activity. And because God is love, love is personal, because love is an essential aspect of what God is, we can trace this back to the eternal inner relationships within the triune God. Looking back before the foundation of the world, Jesus could speak to his Father and 
talk about my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. John 17, 24. Jesus looked back to the love that the Father had in him before ever the created realm came into existence. And that love continued, that love between the Father and the Son continued, even when the Son came in the flesh. The voice from heaven came saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And it was a reciprocated love, it went both ways. Jesus said also in John's Gospel, The world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. And we can argue by extension that similar relationships existed with respect to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So before ever there was anything other than God, love was exercised in the inner Trinitarian relationships uh, that It is an essential aspect of Christian understanding of God, that God didn't need to create to love. Love requires another to be loved, and that was satisfied, that requirement was amply satisfied in the triune nature that is God himself. But when God did create his love gained new fields of expression as he interacted, as he still interacts with the world he brought into existence. God's love, his care and concern, his giving towards others, his attachment to them are now displayed in new, heightened, and indeed in paradoxical variety. Creation didn't originate God's love, But when God created, it gave him a field, a vast field, in which to display his love even more fully. Let's first of all focus on his love as it's been revealed as goodness or benevolence. One aspect, one essential aspect of God's love is his goodness. He is the source of all goodness. He is the standard of goodness. Why is something good? Because God does it, or God approves it. There is no higher external standard that God has to come up to before what he does or what he approves can be called good. At the end of the six creation days, God surveyed what he had done and pronounced his satisfaction with it. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was God, the divine craftsman, looking at what he had brought into existence by his creative word and saying, yes, it corresponds precisely to what I had intended. It was good because it was what God had wanted to exist. And his goodness continues in his providential rule. 
He is the one who is good and does good, as the psalmist tells us. And that goodness shows itself in his care and concern for those whom he has made. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So there is, in God's love, his goodness love, that shows itself in the provision that he has made, both of what is in creation and in his maintenance of creation. Now that goodness love of God was shown in the world as he originally created it. But his love is not exhausted there. Indeed, the display of divine love is intensified when we think of how God is related to the world fallen into sin. And there are three words that characterize God's love toward his fallen creation. There is his mercy, and mercy is love extended towards those who are in need, those who are in distress. There is God's grace, which is God's love towards those who are worthy of punishment. His love towards those not, who have, not simply haven't merited goodness, but have positively merited something other than goodness. And there is a third aspect of his love that we have to lay hold of as well, the long-suffering, the patience of his love. And that is his love as it is exercised over a period of time towards those who continue to offend against him, those who continue to reject him, those who continue uh, to make light of what he requires. So, if we're thinking of God's love, there are these three aspects that we've constantly to remind ourselves of. Grace, emphasizing that God doesn't look in us, doesn't look in us for something that deserves his favor. You see, God might still act for our good. God might still act benevolently, but require of us that we deserve him to act in this way, that we earn his display of goodness. But scripture presents us with a gracious love that reaches out to the sinful, to the guilty, to the condemned. And it's also a merciful love. And mercy heightens the compassion of God's action. You can reach out in love to the unworthy and do it coldly. Do it condescendingly. Do it almost in a way that's repulsive. But God's love is a merciful love. It comes tender-hearted. It is compassion. And it is a patient love. It doesn't deal with us summarily. 
The first instance we offend is not the end of his dealings with us. Time and again, uh, when we fail, when even the Christian fails and falls away into sin, God's long-suffering love seeks to draw us back to himself. Now, I'm sure you know that in the New Testament, there is a particular word that's used to characterize God's love, the word agape. And really, the reason why agape and its verb, the associated verb, were used in the New Testament was because it was, an abs- it was a virtually colorless word. Before it was taken up uh, by the scripture authors, it didn't have any real overtones or significance. Many of the other Greek words for love had become debased, had particular wrong associations. You don't understand the meaning of the word agape, of the, the word for God's love, in the New Testament by looking at the prehistory of the word. It was chosen because it was a neutral word and its content and its significance are what are exposed to our view in the message of the gospel. It didn't have any negative associations. The New Testament writers took it and poured into it the fullness of the revelation of God's love in Jesus Christ. So that God's agape, God's agape love, is his incomparable love for rebellious sinners whose destiny otherwise would only be unmitigated doom. It's not a love that springs from some inner divine need for satisfaction. So often human love expresses a lack, an absence within the heart that has to be filled in terms of a relationship. God's love is not like that. It doesn't focus on self-gratification. It voluntarily, gratuitously springs up from within the very nature of God and bestows on those who are the objects of his love all the good that God wishes to them. Perhaps I should just say a little bit more about grace at this point. The idea behind grace, and this time I'm talking about the word, both in Hebrew and Greek, is essentially that of beauty, of attractiveness, something that has an appeal to the senses. And you find many passages in the Old Testament, I'm thinking here of Proverbs 5.19, which speaks of a loving doe, a graceful deer. It's the picture of an animal in beauty, an animal that is attractive to look at. And the New Testament word for grace, charis, comes from a verb to rejoice. Grace is what induces gladness. And then the word developed its scope to focus not on physical characteristics, but on the disposition of the one who shows grace, who has grace. And God, in his grace, 
displays what he is in himself. He shows his inner disposition. And he shows, could we say, the beauty of his inner disposition. And then grace came to be applied to what God bestows, what he gives to us. Grace came to apply to the gift as well as the disposition of the giver. God is gracious, and what in his graciousness he bestows is also grace. So the word can apply on both sides of the action. And particularly his grace refers to what he gives despite our being undeserving. But I think the lesson from the background of the word is that we should, as we look at his grace, as we look at his gift, we should never so objectify it that it becomes separate from the grace, the disposition of the giver. God's grace is at both sides. It is both the disposition of the giver and the gift that he he dispenses. And there is this overtone of beauty, of attractiveness, of allure that's in the word grace. And not just in English, equally, it's, it's, grace is an excellent rendering of the, 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 the concepts of the original languages. So then we had God's love shown as his goodness before ever there was a fall. And then in the fall, after the fall, shown in terms of his mercy love, his grace love, his patience love. But there's still a very real sense in which divine love continues to be displayed indiscriminately towards the fallen creation. This is often referred to as common grace. The common doesn't mean ordinary, it means indiscriminate. And it's a definite teaching of Scripture. Jesus talks of the Father's goodness. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Just as when God created before the fall, we can trace his goodness love in the way in which he created and the way in which he bestowed lavishly on creation. So we can see the continuation of that goodness love in a special way, despite the fact that creation has fallen away from what God intended. We can continue to see his goodness love expressed in what's known as common grace. He maintains the fabric of the world. He continues uh, to send the, the sun and the rain to give good gifts. But I think we've got to be careful. And this was something that struck me very much when I was preparing to, to come and talk to you tonight. We've got to make sure we've grasped the relationship between his common grace and his saving grace. 
Oh, I think I myself had got into the habit of thinking of his common grace as, as the foundation. And somehow his special grace was a narrowing of that. It's really the other way round. It's God's saving purpose that's primary. Why does this world continue? Because God has determined to save for himself a people. It is his special grace in the saving of sinners that's foundational. And common grace is the consequence, not the condition. It's not because there's common grace, therefore there's also special grace. It's the fact that God has decided to save in the particular way that he's done. He doesn't save an individual and immediately take them Elijah-like to heaven. He has decided to work out his grace and his love in a process of salvation over time. And because of that, he has extended to the created realm the provision, the preservation, and the goodness, so that there might be the adequate environment in which he can work out his purposes of saving grace. So the Father, yes, the Father acts in goodness towards the world. But that's not the primary datum. The primary fact of this world's existence right here and now is that God is maintaining it so that he can save to himself a people. And round that fact, all else falls into place. Now the main scriptural presentation of God's love is, of course, in terms of his love revealing itself in the salvation of sinners. And can I just mention one Old Testament passage? Uh, I never feel quite right unless I've got an Old Testament passage in it somewhere. And that's Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. The NIV translates it as, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. If you've got another translation, you might find another word there. And to my mind, unaccountably, the NIVs omitted what I think is the most significant word in the verse, and that's the therefore. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. But the verse brings together two of the key Old Testament words regarding God's love. If you read through the prophecy of Jeremiah, it's chapter 31 before you get to this declaration. And you've plowed through material where the prophet has time and again been denouncing the sin of the people. Nothing's prepared us for this declaration of divine love. There's been scathing denunciation of the sin and the treachery of Judah. And then the Lord testifies to his everlasting attachment to his people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that's from a way back and is going forward away into the future. It was a love that was not evoked by any merit 
in the people. It wasn't in response to any goodness. That's the message that's abundantly clear. The people were condemned. But it was a love freely given, despite demerit. A gracious love. And you can't explain it. It just is. Because that's what God's like. You can't get back of the fact that I have loved you with an everlasting love. Because that is what God is like. But his love is also an active love. And that's why the second part of the verse introduces a characteristic Old Testament word that's virtually untranslatable. Therefore I have drawn you, or therefore I have continued drawn out my faithfulness, my loving kindness to you. Now this word brings out the constancy of God's love. It's his covenant love, his committed love, his steadfast love. The love that he has committed himself to show as he works for the good of those on whom he has set his love, his electing love, his love of choice. So that the prophet says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that relates to God's electing love, looking on his people and for reason deep within the Godhead and inaccessible to us, his choice of one and not another. And he says, on the basis of that love, I have drawn you with loving kindness, love strengthened by loyalty. It describes the, the characteristic of the relationship that should exist in covenant with the Lord. He will not give up. The God who has decided to love does not give up even when his people spurn that love. Now the Old Testament presentation of divine love, there's a lot more to be said than I have time for just now. That's just the merest of sketches because it's continued and presented in greater detail in the New Testament. The emphasis throughout the whole of Scripture is that this love is unmerited. God's love precedes any disposition of love in our part. As we heard there in 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's no doubt that it's clearly traced back to a time prior to our response to God. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, Father, Son, and Spirit act united in this love towards those who are saved. And I think the distinctive note of the New Testament presentation of divine love is the personalizing of it. The Old Testament's not without evidence of divine love towards individuals. I'm not saying that. 
But the balance of the Old Testament evidence is much more God's love towards his people as a whole. The the more references to the, the corporate love towards Israel. That's what's dominant. The New Testament emphasizes more the individual personal dimension. Paul speaks of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is the distinguishing mark, the characteristic note of the New Testament presentation of the divine love, that it is personally appropriated. Not that the love towards Christ's love towards his church, not that Christ's love towards his people is denied, by no means, but the, the, the balance of emphasis has changed. So this divine love shows itself in the sending of the Savior. It's not just limited to our Lord's time on earth. The divine love continues to show itself. It is still active. It is still seeking to save sinners. There are those three grand parables in Luke 15. The parables of lostness. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And the message in each is of the unwavering, persisting, seeking love of God. They're lost, and in their lostness, they can't reinstate themselves. Even when it comes to the lost son, uh, the initiative is focused on the watch, the father's keeping for his returning son, and the unmerited welcome he extends. The son who thought uh, that he, he could never be reinstated in the father's favor is by the father's love taken back into the household. The picture of God's love is not just focused on what happened at the cross. It's a love that continues to seek out, to seek out and to save that which is lost. Now, of course, it's also the case, and I've mentioned it already, that in the Old Testament... God's love doesn't originate in anything in us, but with him. The Old Testament spelled that out. Again, it's a corporate reference. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples or because you were stronger. But the Lord loved you and keeps that love to a thousand generations. But again, the New Testament brings an added dimension. Because when Jesus is talking in John 15 about God's love, he says the the master-servant relationship doesn't really exhaust it. He says the idea of the covenant king and his subject, which is very much the Old Testament model, doesn't capture it all. He says, this is now a friend-to-friend relationship. It's the, this is what is now accessible between the believer and his Savior. In that passage in the middle of John 15, love is mentioned time and time again. And it's emphasizing the closeness, the intimacy, the bond 
Now, these are supposed to be lectures and not sermons, but I can't resist. Because, as you saw, even when we're reading through 1 John 4 there, the New Testament refuses to think of God's love simply in isolation. It always thinks also of the mirror image of God's love. Divine attributes are traditionally characterized in two ways, the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. Not very nice words. Uh, The basic distinction is between what is essentially God's and there is no real reflection of it in creation. And those aspects of God and his character that are expected to be reflected in creation. And love is supremely what God expects to see reflected in the life of his church. Love in our relationship towards him and love in our relationship towards our fellows. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And that love shows itself in obeying his commands. I don't know if any of you have uh, know about Professor John Murray, who was a Scotsman who emigrated to America and taught systematic theology at Westminster for many years. But uh, Professor Murray had a saying that he repeated on many occasions, that love is not the excogitation of its own norm. And that's typical of Professor Murray. (laughs) But in it, there is a profound truth. Uh, I've tended to use a very much more secular example. There used to be an advert on television. Uh, Perhaps it's still there. I just don't watch television very much now. Uh, for Cadbury's Milk Tray, where some gentlemen performed all sorts of uh, feats of daring, and the the punchline of the advert was, and all because the lady loves milk tray. He wanted to show his love for her, but it was based on knowledge. If she'd really liked black magic and couldn't stand milk chocolate, it was a waste of time. Even though he was doing it out of the best of motives, even though he was doing it to express his devotion. And it's the same with Christian love towards God. We can be sincere and utterly wrong. To express our love towards God, he has to tell us what it is he wants. Love is not the excogitation. It cannot think out for itself what it's proper for love to do. And as we seek to mirror God's love, we've got to get back to Scripture and hear him telling us how it is that love is to express itself. That's the great problem with the modern conception of love. It's secularly driven. It's a human definition And so often 
if I may put it this way, it ends up with milk tray when it was really... Oh, black magic sounds terrible. Uh, it, it, I'll not... I, I hope you can cut that wee bit out. Um, it's so often based on a human knowledge rather than on what God has been pleased to tell us himself. Now, it's one of the most amazing facts in all scripture that just as God's love involves him giving from his divine resources to bless us, we can in return give of ourselves, listening to how he's told us to do it, and actually bring joy to the heart of God. Isaiah promised God's people, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 62.5 But for me, the the most astounding, the most mind-blowing picture of all is found in the prophecy of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The singing God, because of what his people and their response in love means to him. There's something that will take eternity for us to comprehend. But it's not simply that we're expected to mirror God's love back to him himself. There's also the dimension of God's love as we express it towards his people. We had it there in John, 1 John 4. Since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. It's in this way that people will recognize the character and commitment of those who are Christ's. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it's not just love in general. It's love that mirrors the specifics of God's love in mercy, in grace, and in long-suffering. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Paul spelled it out another way, but it's the same truth at the beginning of his second letter to the Corinthians. The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort wherewith we have been comforted ourselves by God. God's mercy, his compassion, the feeling love of God that he's shown to us in all our troubles has to inform, has to dictate and mold the love that we show towards those whom we meet in trouble. And it's also to be grace love. Grace that comes as God's love towards not simply those who don't deserve it, but those who positively have turned their backs, who deserve punishment. Freely you have received, freely give. Or that most challenging of petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven 
our debtors. And we are to imitate God's long-suffering love. He is the one who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And his slowness to anger is a dimension of his love. And it's one that he expects his people to display also. The Apostle James said, My brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Love, patience, and goodness are all fruit of the Spirit. And it's by moment-to-moment trust in God that we're able to display in what little measure we can to mirror forth our reaction to the tremendous love that's been shown to us. So having sketched some of the dimensions of God's love, can I just mention now some of the difficulties that some people have? I'm sure I'll not mention them all, but that'll give you something to quiz me about. The first difficulty that I've met, and in fact talking with people, I met it again this afternoon, is that it arises from the fact that we say God's love is eternal. And so they ask the question, doesn't that, the fact that God is loving other than himself, jeopardize what we're saying about God's love being eternal? Surely if God was able within the bonds of the Trinity to show love towards the other perfect persons, if the Father loved the Son and the Son the Spirit and the Spirit the Father and the Son, surely that is such a perfect expression of love that to say that God loves the likes of us is actually imperiling the status of the divine love within the bonds of the the Trinity itself. If they say there was an adequate and completely self-sufficient love in God from all eternity. Aren't we downgrading it? Aren't we imperiling it? If we now say that God's love focuses on something outside of himself. Now in many respects that sort of question goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. And he used that sort of reasoning to argue that the divine, the gods, or whatever, couldn't love anything other than themselves. But that's obviously not a Christian stance. That is contrary to the statements of Scripture. There's John telling us in how many different ways of God's love. So what is there in the revelation of Scripture that enables us to say no, that understanding's wrong. Well, I think it must go back to the fact that God has created us in his own image. And to that extent, we can participate in his greatness and his goodness. What God's looking at in saved sinners is his own image 
He still loves us for what he can give to us, not for what we give to him. But the threat to his glory doesn't seem to me to be so compromised. Once we see that the love that God is showing is a love that's focused on those whom he's made in his own image, those whom he has renewed in the likeness of his Son, so that ultimately it is not exalting man, not even man saved, but is ultimately focusing back in on what God is in himself. I don't know if that's the total answer, but it seems to me to go some way towards indicating how it is that the scriptural approach to that situation is quite different from the pagan approach because of what scripture presents man as being and redeemed mankind as being. And the second matter I'd like to mention is what's meant when God is said to love the world. Now, undoubtedly, God loves the world because we're told that clearly in Scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We saw it also in 1 John 4. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. God's love, God's purpose embraces the world. Now that causes some people problems because they know, they can see, that in particularly John's Gospel and John's Epistle, the word world denotes what we would say call the world in its worldliness, the world in its God-denying pursuit of the wealth and acclaim that can be enjoyed at this present time. Indeed, the Apostle John, in, in chapter 2 of his letter, it tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. There is a sense in which the believer is told, don't love the world. And there is a sense in which it is said, God loved the world. What is it we're being told? Well, the American theologian B.B. Warfield acknowledged that in John 3.16, the employment of the term world was ethical. It was world, sinful world. And he said the, um, the point of using the word is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But that the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. And much more to love it as God loved it when he gave his son for it. The passage isn't intended to speak of God's love of approval. God's saving action 
It's never based on approval of sin, even condoning sin. God's love, when he looks at the world, is not a love that in any way approves of the mess we've made of his good creation. But his love is his determination to do good for his world, to reclaim it from its fallenness, not to wipe it out and say that is the end of the story. He could justly do that. We've offended against him. But his love is of such a character and our demerit is of such a heinous nature that we see the greatness of his love in the determination of his love and his justice to send his son to die. What is intended, Warfield said, is to arouse in our hearts a wondering sense of the marvel and mystery of the love of God. You will find no marvel so great, no mystery so unfathomable as this, that the great and good God whose perfect righteousness flames in indignation at the sight of every iniquity, and whose absolute holiness recoils in abhorrence in the presence of every impurity, yet loves this sinful world so that he has given his only begotten Son to die for it. God gave his Son not to condone the world's sin, not to say just tut-tut, that was wrong. He gave his son to be the redeemer, to come and solve the problem of the world's sin. And so when we read God loved the world, we're not being told of affection towards sin. We're not being told of any approval of it, we're being asked to wonder that the God of holiness should have acted in this way. And that leads in to the third area of perplexity. Is there not then, people wonder, tension between God's love and his justice? And there have been theologians, there are still many modern theologians who argue that the way we have to understand it is that God's love is so great that his love conquers his wrath, conquers his desire for punishment, overwhelms his justice. But that's to misconstrue the biblical evidence. We're talking about God. We're talking about the attributes of God. And we have to talk about them one by one because our understanding is so limited, our ability is is so constrained. We can't take in all that God is. But although there are so many different attributes of God, there's no tension between any of them. They're not things that are added to his basic character. And if you add things, there might be incompatibility between some of them. We're looking at them singly because of our incapacity to do it any other way. It's not a lack of oneness. It's not a lack of integrity in God that leads us to talk first of this and then of that. 
But there's always been those who felt it difficult to bring together God's love and his justice. It goes back to the the early thinker Marcion, who went so far as to say Scripture reveals to us two gods. There's the God of the Old Testament, severe, unforgiving, intent on justice. And there's the God and Father of our Savior in the New Testament, or at least Marcion thought in parts of the New Testament. He cut out some of it as well. Now, even if we don't go as far as Marcion, you can see how people can wonder, is there not some tension here? But the answer is not to try not to view God's love in isolation. It exists alongside, it interpenetrates his holiness and his justice. If we take the modern idea of love, which is giving someone what they at that particular moment most want, then we're not approaching love in the biblical fashion. God's love is not an exercise in indulging the whims of humanity. If that's our definition of it, yes, there is a contradiction with justice. But the witness of Scripture is that divine love and divine righteousness, already united in the simplicity of God, meet in the reality of justification by faith. The psalmist of old put it, love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Love and justice come together in God's dealings in salvation with mankind. Because love and justice, mercy and righteousness, are not antithetical pairs. The opposite of mercy is not righteousness. The opposite of mercy is cruelty. The opposite of righteousness is not love, but unrighteousness, injustice. There's nothing inherently logically inconsistent between saying that love and justice can operate at the same time. God's love works itself out in righteousness so that there is the harmony of all that God is in himself is always maintained. In the atoning work of Jesus Christ, we see the complete expression of God's wisdom. It is the ultimate revelation of the divine resources. His love harmonized with his justice in the forgiveness of sinners. There's only tension if one's definition of love somehow requires that God can forgive sin without any payment being made. But that's not the God with whom we have to do. He is holy. He cannot condone sin. But his love was so great that he gave his son to pay the price. God is both righteous and loving. And he has given what his love demands. And the love of God is deprived of its full and final scriptural content if we isolate it from the death of Christ on the cross showing us how God himself paid the penalty so that we can be found at peace with him. But I have one last thought. And that is that we mustn't just see God's love at the cross. 
That is the supreme exhibition, yes. But his love is at work still because his plan is to ensure that the fool benefits of all that the Son achieved on our behalf are realized in the lives of his people. Our Lord said to his, in his high priestly prayer, he said to the Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. It's a tremendous thought. The Father's love for the Son infuses the Father's relationship with all who are the Son's. The love of God continues to work itself out so that as joint heirs with Christ, we are in the same loving relationship with the Father as he is. That the love you have for me, said Jesus, may be in them. There is an extravagance to the divine love. Here we've just glimpsed something of it. And God will continue to work until he has brought us to know the full reality of that. That's what Paul had in mind when he said, when he wrote to the Ephesians, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That is the target of God's love. That is the purpose he is working out now. And he will continue until it is achieved. And yet even then, we're talking about something whose dimensions it will take us the whole of eternity to explore. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Thank you. You okay for questions? Uh, no. <laughs> Thank you. Now, other questions and, and, and comments, please. Um, I, I never know when people are about to scratch their nose whether they're about to ask a question or not. I'm going to ask somebody to ask a question in a moment. Um, <laughs> don't be afraid. There must be some questions come to mind. Yes. You're looking at me. <laughs> if I could find out where Professor Macaulay uh, in Ephesians mentions the word measure, 
I could ask the question. Well, I was quoting at the end there, the end of Ephesians, not quite the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Um, you probably find different translations of different... Uh, but it's uh, Ephesians 3.19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Has somebody got something other than the NIV? I'm sure, seeing the faces around me, there are some. What's the author? What's the author, I say? And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. Yes, okay, so. Has anyone got another version? Um, Well, it's, it's, it's the word measure which suggests limitation. If, if something's measured, it's, it's got a limit. Yes, but if we're talking about the measure of the fullness of God, <laughs> you have a problem. I, I'm not, I honestly can't remember what the original is at the present moment. That would solve the problem in two seconds. That's why ministers should always have the Greek Testaments with them. I'm afraid I don't just now. Um, I, I can't recall, but it sounds, because it's not in the AV, as if this is an attempt by the NIV uh, to paraphrase an expression that's there, uh, filled to the measure of all. I suspect it's translating a preposition uh, where there isn't a noun in the Greek. Uh, it, it is a paradoxical statement. But um, if you can measure God's fullness, uh, you know, it's difficult to know quite what it's saying. It's saying something tremendous, something overwhelming, but... Uh, it pictures the individual as totally divinely empowered. Uh, that's how it will be when we're in glory. Are you saying it's not a good translation? <laughs> there is no translation that is perfect. Uh, the NIV has many strengths, one of which is that it, it reads very well in public. Uh, there are other translations that are much more literalistic. Uh, uh, for study purposes, I, I'm very much taken with the New American Standard Version myself. But I, I do admit that it reads very woodenly. Um, but it's, it's very close to the original. No one has one here, do they? Do we hear what they say? No? Um, it'll never take off. and It's been around for years, but it's been called the New American Standard. It's... it's just automatically limited its market. Hmm. <laughs> There's an assumption that American and the English language don't go together, I think, as well. I'm sure that's unfair, but... Well, this is, like... the, the NIV's American, but yes, they, they had a revising committee that... They didn't put the word out... American in, did they? No, they said international. <laughs> Better sales that way. Yes, sir. I think it's very difficult to ask questions on a subject like this because... Obviously, Pastor Mackay is speaking from God's heart to us. Mm. And it's all very well to pick out things and try and work things out. But God's speaking into our hearts. And I think we need to sit back and, and meditate and listen to what this man said to us and why. It's too easy just to want questions that we have. And I think God, God's here. He's been speaking for a lot of us in different ways. And I think it's something that perhaps we might need to look at our notes I think you've been very wise in what you said there. 
No, none of the thanks. That wasn't what I was getting. But the fact that th this really is something that you don't want to question in that sort of sense. Uh, it's something that you are tempted just to be dazzled by. And, and the depths of it go way beyond uh, our ability to cope with competently. Uh, it sounds strange, but it sometimes is easier to talk about God's, God's omnipotence or his omnipresence uh, much more than his love uh, because this is just something that blows the mind. Yes, Colin. You talk about um, not a universal experience, but one that, that often happens a young Christian <coughs> is very unaware right. of when they become a Christian. And can you talk about that and how life goes on after that? Why does God like that? I thought the question was going to be why does the believer act like that? Because having known God's love and having experienced it in a very personal way, we begin to get used to it. Uh, there's the proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, contempt is too strong, but we are fickle and we begin to get so used to some ideas, get so used to certain aspects of a relationship that our response in love has to be maintained. And oh, I hope I don't tread on any tours here, but that's one of the reasons why the, the, the Lord instituted uh, the sacrament of the supper as a perpetual part of the Christian life that we need to be reminded. It sounds almost mechanical, but it's not. We need a regular reminder of what God, has, God in Christ has done for us. And that is part of his way of training us into uh, an ongoing reaction of love. Because the, the, the beginning Christian, the love is very much focused on the cross, very much focused on what Christ did for me and it's to that that we are brought back in the supper and uh, God is there dealing with us in our slowness and in our proneness to fall flat and is dealing with it not by giving something different but by reminding us of what's essential and the same and fundamental <laughs>